This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7 on the FM dial. We are going to talk about film. We do film criticism. My name is Thomas Cordwell. We've got a full deck tonight. I'm joined by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Hello, nicholas Good evening to you all. Hi. Good evening. And I think this is going to be... Sorry, Cerise, I forgot to, <laughs> I forgot to let you say a polite goodbye. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, can't take you, I can take a hint, but choose not to. <laughs> I'm staying put. I was this close to asking somebody else the panel tonight so I could just lie down. So <laughs> it's going to be a bumpy ride, folks. <laughs> look, we are going to try and get through tonight's show and look at three very diverse films. I think we've got one of those shows where it's going to be tricky drawing any lines between them. Let's get into the films. We're going to look at the Israeli comedy drama Zero Motivation. It's about a group of young women who make up the administrative department at a remote desert army base in order to fulfill their compulsory military service. We're then going to turn our attention to a new adaptation of the classic Thomas Hardy novel Far From the Madding Crowd, where Carrie Mulligan plays the novel's hero Bathsheba Everdeen, a woman, to quote the source material, that some would say too independent. And then the highly acclaimed and Academy Award-nominated Estonian-Georgian co-production Tangerines, where two villagers who just want to harvest a crop of mandarins get caught up in the complex conflict that occurred in the region in the early 1990s. But let's start with Zero Motivation, which I believe is said, what, mid-80s, mid to late 80s, early 90s? I don't think it's contemporary. We're all looking puzzled. Hang on, I have got a fly here. Well, there's a girl playing Minesweeper throughout it, so whenever that turned up in the uh, Windows world... So I think it's late 90s. I know it's not contemporary, yeah, because one of the themes of this film is technology slowly coming in, making their lives kind of easier, but also making them redundant. Look, this is um, uh, it's an Israeli film that debuted over a year ago at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York, and it's uh, had a number of festival screenings around the world, including in Australia. So it screened in the Jewish International Film Festival last year, uh, and they're actually now acting as the distributors for this film uh, as well. This has been a massive success in Israel, and I think it's because the film taps into very specific Israeli experiences in a way that maybe hasn't been done before. I'm not so sure how well that translates beyond Israel, though. I will, I'm sure we'll talk about that. It's inspired by the filmmaker's own experiences. The filmmaker is a woman named um, Talia Levy. Uh, she had to do the Israeli Defence Forces service. Um, I, I think it's sort of fairly common knowledge now that young people in Israel are obliged. They have to do this mandatory time in the military once they're um, over 18. I think for men they have to do three years, women have to do two years. I, I, just as a side note, apparently there's all sorts of ways you can get out of this, but about half the population still under undergoes it. Uh, she also made a 2006 short film called The Substitute, which covered similar subject matter. Um, and look, Israeli cinema has explored the military duty before. I, I, I have seen films here and there that, that, that look at this, this kind of sort of process, this kind of scene, this kind of dynamic. That They've certainly covered it from a female perspective as, as well. Um, but this film, I think, 
I haven't seen a film that looks at its most banal, reducing what they do to admin and, and paperwork. You know, the, the characters in this film are women who are given dull admin jobs that, that they have to do filing, shredding and bring coffee to the male soldiers who seem to run everything. Some of these women aspire to a career in the military. Some are just keeping their heads down. Uh, some are trying to do anything they can to get out of work and some are just incredibly upset and depressed uh, about being there. This is a film that I've heard compared to MASH, um, the TV series The Office, the film Office Space, because I think of that dynamic ensemble cast dealing with sort of mundane things like like bosses and, and, and paperwork and pulling small pranks on each other. I've got to say, though, unlike those texts, I didn't get any huge laughs from this. I mean, those are all films and TV shows I really, really enjoyed, where this is more film. I, I sort of, I guess I appreciated it. It passed me by. I didn't get the big belly laughs. So I know a few people did. It's divided into three chapters. Each chapter loosely follows a different character and their struggles. There's some weird tonal shifts in this film. It gets incredible. There's a really dark and disturbing incident that comes towards the end of the first chapter, and then that incident is, is then used to facilitate black humour later in the film. But it it certainly pulls quite a dark cloud over the film that I, I I really wanted to move on from, and I think the film wanted me to move on from that as well. But I, I really had um a hard, a hard time. I think the characters are reasonably well uh, fleshed out, and I think it does. It never really moves. The film never really falls into absurdity until some of the moments towards the end, and I think it's well timed enough so it is quite fun when it starts getting a little bit sillier. It explores some of the double standards these women have to endure, um, and just you know the, these broadly universal concepts concerning menial work, the things you put up with from infuriating co-workers just to that wonderful art of avoiding doing any work. I thought this was reasonably entertaining and insightful, only to a degree. But like I said, I think that the experience this film catches is going to mean a whole lot more to people from Israel than to somebody in my position. Uh, I think you've nailed a lot of the issues that I had with this, Thomas. Um, my overarching uh, response once I'd finished watching the film was I think something was lost in translation because I just didn't get it. I didn't find it funny. The drama didn't work for me. And the the real sticking point, I guess, for, for me with this film was the tonal shift and particularly the one that you've referred to at the end of that first section. I think it takes an incredibly talented filmmaker to pull off something which switches so dramatically from a fast office type sitcom one that i didn't find particularly funny to a serious moment involving grievous bodily harm which is then treated as a gag i think if you're going to do a tonal shift you have to kind of commit to the to the darkness commit to the dramatic quality and make a point about it but it, it almost felt like the filmmaker didn't really want to make a point about it despite the the, the shift in tone so that i guess rubbed me the wrong way and, I, and I, I i guess i struggled to get back involved and I, as i was watching it i was reminded of things like private benjamin the goldie horn film which i think is, is uh, yeah, far nothing. more yeah. extraordinary than than this film is and how i guess films like private benjamin and those these films during the 80s, we had a whole sort of raft of, on the back of the SNL crew, I mean, you think of films like Stripes and so on that did the, the male uh, army training film, and the tropes that were in those, you know, when they'd go out for their night out, or you've got the virgin, you've got the kind of the training drills and the incompetent people, you've got the incompetent offer stuff. This film has all those tropes in, in varying degrees, or a number of those tropes, but doesn't actually do anything apart from the, switch the genders. I didn't really feel a strong 
gender commentary in this film. I, you, you mentioned that there are, it is there in elements, but it, I didn't feel it quite strongly. And I think, again, there's another tonal shift in that final chapter where uh, a sexual assault, I mean, it's a rape, is again used as a gag. And we, go, we have another extreme tonal shift, which, again, just didn't really function for me. I, I'm actually quite stressed out about talking about this film in a way because there's been a lot of discussion lately about women in film. Gillian Armstrong's had quite a lot to say about this in recent weeks, which has been really interesting to see that all unfold. And last year at Cannes, of course, Jane Campion gave quite a famous now press conference where she said quite beautifully that the biases in the film industry mean that we're just not hearing the stories that women have to tell. And I think that that's a beautiful phrase to use that 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 the lack of diversity in filmmaking means that there's just not stories that we're hearing um so zero motivation i guess made by a woman from israel is a story we need to hear um just by virtue of the fact that it's not another random overprivileged californian dude bro telling rose mcgowan to wear a push-up bra to an audition um see i'm keeping it topical i'm doing that Keep um, keeping the rage keep maintaining the rage so because of all of these reasons alone i actually really want to celebrate zero motivation for just existing for just being distributed and just being made you know actually making it to screens around the world and having people watch it at the same time this puts me in a a kind of i almost feel like a bit of a hypocrite because while i celebrate that there are these films coming out from these diverse voices i just didn't like this film um i've i've also mentioned both stripes and um uh private benjamin as well interestingly um i don't yeah, I really want to celebrate diversity, but at the same time, I guess on a more personal level, I kind of want the time that I spent watching this film back. I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant to go in really for the kill for this film, and that in itself I think is a curious decision to make. Um, I, Yeah, look, I mean, Private Benjamin Stripes, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think there's a, there's a one of the many storylines in this film is about a young woman determined to lose her virginity, which is a real trope um, of American teen cinema especially and I get intellectually that that's a cool idea to kind of reverse that and have it from a girl's perspective but to be honest I think it's a kind of lazy boring trope at the best of times whether it's a girl or a boy it just really didn't work for me this is a debut feature and I think that that's worth flagging this really felt just a bit too green for me to be juggling like you guys have said she's she's just juggling a lot of different storylines here and I I think for a a debut film that's a big call and I I, maybe it maybe it is a a, a cross-cultural communication uh, translation issue but um, I just felt that all of those balls that were being juggled in the air really didn't didn't work for me. Didn't really work for me either, um, tonally in particular. I, I saw this uh, about a year ago, maybe a bit less. I didn't revisit it just for the sake of the show because I wasn't, uh, I didn't enjoy it enough first time round. But I, I remember being distinctly uncomfortable with those the, the two um, elements to the narrative that you've raised uh, between you all, especially the, the sexual assault uh, and. and Maybe I'd have given the the film more slack if somehow the the funny stuff had actually been funnier and sharper, the satire a bit more biting, the the zany antics in this uh, office, this grim office with this grim, officious twit overseeing these girls. If that had somehow felt sharper too, but it was familiar and and none of the gags were really terribly exceptional. It, It... yeah, all these points of comparison, the Office series, Office Space, um, it's, it's just not as funny as a single episode of The Office, let alone the film Office Space, which I actually have, still have a very soft spot for. And 
other great biting uh, war satires on film, I, I think to have Catch-22, I think that's really underrated, Mike Nichols' adaptation uh, of Catch-22. Definitely. It's a great film, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, that film still has real bite to it about the futility of war, and this film doesn't really look at that. It's not really so interested in that, but it's difficult to imagine. Uh, it's difficult to think of this film... And, and think that it shouldn't somehow have uh, riffed more on just how futile that side of things is. Not just the office work, but the bigger picture, the, fu- the futile Israel-Palestine conflict that is seemingly inexorable and, and that side of things. It's there as a, a backdrop, but not in focus enough for That's mine. a really interesting point that's never really explored. The whole point of this film is there is this law in Israel where people have to go and do this servitude. That's what it's about. It doesn't really ever examine the military at all. Or really the hierarchy in any in any depth. Yeah, the more we talk about it, I, I, it is a film I want to like so much. And I know people who have. And I know people who are very excited to have seen it last year and are looking forward to this release. I watched I, it with somebody who was belly laughing through it. Right. Like, and it was very strange. Just, just sitting there with a completely straight face myself and watching. They work in an office, so maybe that has something yeah, to do with I've that. Done I my time, I've done my time I've in horrible office on the front. too. Yeah, um, yeah. I think we all have to a degree, which is why some of the things we've spoken about resonate so much. I just didn't get the big laughs. And I should all point out, we all kind of feel a bit the same about this, considering we have often quite different views on what's funny and what isn't. So, so I, yeah, I don't know. I sort of I, I want to support this in theory and in essence, but it just never quite hits home, does it? Three, triple, ah. The next film we're going to discuss, Far From the Madding Crowd. Well, we've looked a bit lately at directors who are linked to the avant-garde Dogma 95 movement and where they've ended up 20 years later. Um, the last few months, I guess, we've, we've looked at people like uh, Christian Levering's The Salvation. We looked at Lonnie Scherfig's The Riot Club. And I guess between us, we've actually reached some pretty um, ambivalent conclusions and um, different opinions about where those particular directors are at post-Dogma 95. Last one, she is probably the most famous name for the, from this movement, but for my money, I guess it's on... Um, I think that the most important and interesting director to kind of last out of that movement is Thomas Vinterberg, who, of course, directed the latest adaptation of Thomas Hardy's classic 1874 novel, Far From the Madding Crowd. Now, I was pretty crap at being a girl as a teenager. Um, All my friends were losing their shit over the Brontes and Jane Austen. I was just devouring every single Thomas Hardy book that I could find, just a big old school fan of Thomas Hardy yet. Not, didn't, I wasn't a particularly popular young girl, but uh, <laughs> that's for another show, perhaps. Um, was, that, was Hardy not considered ladylike? I wasn't aware no, of this. No, no, the, 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 the cool girls were all into the Brontes and Jane Austen. Soft. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was you know... No, no, hardcore Hardy. Yeah, I, hard I was in a gang. I was in the Thomas <laughs> Hardy gang. <laughs> Who were robbing manners of reading Thomas Hardy. <laughs> I think... Um, I could just keep going. Sorry for that derailment. There's something about Hardy that I genuinely think makes him really perfect for adaptations. I think that there's been a remarkable number of really great Thomas Hardy adaptations. Um, Polanski's Tess from 1979, I still honestly think is one of my favourite book-to-film adaptations. I think it's so solid. And John Schlesinger in 1967 uh, made a really terrific version of Far From the Madding Crowd that's pretty good too. Now, Julie Christie's in that. She's from, um, of course, Don't Look Now, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, Dr Shivago. She's amazing. And I honestly didn't think that Carrie Mulligan had it in her to really cut the musket cut the mustard as much as... Um, musket's good. Musket. <laughs> yeah, cut the musket's probably a bit more appropriate. Um, as the she protagonist, Bat- Batsheba Everdeen. Um, but i got to say I was 
wrong. I think that she's probably even better than Julie Christie, and they're not words that I find myself saying often. Um, the film begins as Bathsheba is working on a relative's farm, and she's quite sweetly and clumsily proposed to by a neighbouring farmer called Gabriel Oak, uh, Matthew Schoenitz. Yep. Is that how we pronounce oh, his name? Matthias. Matthias. Matthias, the Matthias. Belgium actor, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And she turns him down because he's kind of, it's kind of really daggy. Can you say daggy? It's a bit daggy. It was, it's kind of sweet and clumsy, but circumstances unfold that find Bathsheba suddenly not only in money, but that she's Oak's boss. And the film basically follows her as she tries to get her head around how to negotiate her own desires and well-being um, with the men, with three men that are trying to court her. Oak, uh, the soldier Frank Troy, played by Jim Sturridge, with an incredible moustache. The film is worth seeing just for his moustache. And Martin Sheen as the wealthy farmer William Boldwood. I'm kind of trying to be objective here, but like I said, I'm a big Thomas Hardy fan and I really I really love this film. I think the performances by the key cast are really solid and engaging and engaged. And the scenes with uh, Schoenartz and Mulligan in particular are like a textbook guide to what on-screen chemistry can be like at its most perfect. They're just electric, the, the, the energy between these two. Um, the smaller roles, I think, are worth flagging as well. I think it's easy to dismiss the, the kind of smaller cast, but I think Juno Temple as Frank Troy's lost love, Fanny. I just love saying <laughs> Fanny on radio. I just Can we talk a lot about Fanny? Um, Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> you flagged that the show was going to be Yeah, weird. it's all going downhill, really. Um, I mean, Fanny could have, as she says, seriously, no, seriously, Fanny could have been a really two-dimensional character, but I think that Temple does something really remarkable, brings some really profound and something really simple to a role that um, the film, I guess, hinges around Temple's performance in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> I just said Fanny and broke Plato's cave. Is that what's happening? She, she fleshes out the character nicely. <laughs> Um, I mean, but this is... Is what you're trying to say. That's, yeah. Yes, that character is, is worth noting. <laughs> yeah. It's her name. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a really minor <laughs> role that um, there could have easily been a two-dimensional throwaway disposable character, and I think Temple does a remarkable work with it. I'm a big fan of Juno Temple, yeah. and um, I think that she does bring a degree of complexity to a lot of roles yeah. that could be quite simplistic yes. um, and two-dimensional, yeah. and I think that it's really... I think that that character, the name of which we won't speak, it's, Josh is still losing his mind. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I think that she. A lot of the way that the film unpacks is actually comes from her character as much as the others, even though she's such a minor character. But as I said, I mean, this is Mulligan's film. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hater of Carrie Mulligan, but this is the film that's pretty much blown me away. I'm Team Mulligan. Josh, Thomas, you, you're well aware. of... <laughs> Your love for Matthias Schoenitz. Yeah. yeah. The Belgium actor who... Rust and Bone was his really um, sort of major film. And Bullhead before that. Bullhead was the one... Yeah. I, when I saw that at MIF, I think it was 2011, yeah. and I've been raving about that film mm-hmm. ever since. He, his transformation, his physical transformation and his performance in that is startling. Mm. And we also saw him briefly in The Drop. Yeah, of course, The Drop, yeah. The film with, with Tom Hardy, and now he's in a Thomas Hardy film. <laughs> um, and I think he's extraordinary. I, yeah. I just think... And, I mean, you talked about the chemistry with between him and, and Mulligan, their eyes, their eye acting in this film is is superb. Um, I mean, in many ways, I think the film should have only gone for ten minutes. It should have been Farmer Oak goes and Farmer Oak, <laughs> sorry, uh, goes and proposes to Kerry Mulligan, and she says yes, and they live happily ever after. But um, that never happens, really, in a in a Thomas Hardy novel. We um, need years of sexual tension instead. Yeah, putting aside all jokes about the performances and, and so on, I think this really brings out and reinforces Vinterberg's strength as an economic 
comic filmmaker. There's such an economy of style, mm. an economy of narrative in here. Uh, often when you have these types of adaptations, you know, within the style of, of Hardy and, and, and beyond, they often feel like they're truncated narratives, they're truncated stories. You feel like you're missing parts, that the narrative takes unnecessary leaps to sort of compact a narrative into two hours. I didn't feel that at all with this film. I, th- I thought there was such a, uh, an intelligence in terms of the style. Even just the opening credit sequence, which only goes for a couple of minutes, and we have, we have so much set up in terms of the character work and the dynamic between the actors. There's a, a wonderful moment where Carrie Mulligan is, is riding horseback um, through, the, through the woods, and we see her sitting side saddle, and then she, she, you know, she swings one leg across and starts riding, and then is laying, laying on her back, looking up through the the, the tops of the trees and you know catches the eye of of um, Roke. i mean everything in that moment and just the first sort of two or three minutes is established with such an economy and i think that's a that's his powerful and we saw that with the hunt as well i mean i think he's a really i think your comment about of, of all the filmmakers from that movement that he maybe has has shown the most promise even though that Lars von trier is is the name i think is is a really good call i think you know we, and we see it here again well, Winterberg and von Trier hatched Dogma together, yes. I believe, and uh, Winterberg surely made the best Dogma film uh, with Festin celebration That's way a, back an when. Amazing by, film. by a long shot, yeah. I'll say too. Actually, yeah. there yeah. is definitely something a bit odd about someone uh, so associated with an avant-garde movement and a manifesto, even if it was a bit of a prank originally, which I do believe it was. <laughs> yeah. uh, then taking on such a, a classical production as this, but. Uh, for, for all its uh, economy, it doesn't mean it actually skimps on some uh, moments of actual great beauty and, in fact, one moment I found incredibly affecting early on uh, where a terrible mishap uh, affects uh, Farmer Oak's flock of sheep and it's, it's gut-wrenching. Yep. It's really, really devastating. And uh, as soon as, as that shot happened, actually, it's only a few minutes in, I knew I was in very good hands with this adaptation. I already sensed it, everything about the, the setup to that point was strong. And I knew, I'm a big fan of Carrie. Carrie? Casey. Carrie. Carrie. Carrie Mulligan. Yep. Excellent. Carrie Mulligan already. I mean, I can't remember her name, but I admire her tremendously. Yeah. And I thought this, this really was a, a very good, solid adaptation and much better than the last Hardy one that I remember seeing not terribly long ago, Michael Winterbottom's Trishna, which I despised. I wasn't a fan of that at all. Yeah, yeah. It didn't, didn't work for me either. Loathsome. Um, that was a retelling of Tess of the Durbervilles, yeah. but in, a, in India. And he previously had done te- uh, Jude the Obscure, I believe. Yeah. He's doing a trilogy, is that right? I he's believe done he's done three Hardy films. Oh, he's done three already. There was another one as well. What are we missing? I quite like Jude. Yeah, then there was the West. And not the, way, the claim. Thank you, now yeah. the claim is Mayor of Casterbridge, I think, oh, really? I as a Western. Yeah, of course, and that's great. And does he perhaps still have another one? I thought there was. Anyway, it does it's by the give by, him, he makes a film every few months, so give him time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, look, I'm glad that uh, Thomas Winterberg took his time to com- classically compose a lot of images for this. And it's a, all a, a very conventional film. And it's, uh, it is odd to see, in a way, uh, an, an avant-gardist go back to what, even way back when the French New Wave materialised and Truffaut dismissed all of this very sort of film as being his, you know, your daddy's cinema, the cinema du papa. Uh, this is that, but it's, it's really compelling and uh, a beautifully made film. And I really adored it. And the two hours just flew by. I loved it. I, 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 and I think it's quite a modern film. And I think... Oh, absolutely. I think the novel has a lot of very modern ideas in it too, which he's teased out beautifully. Um, you know, making Carrie Mulligan's character the central character, but also making it very complex. You know, she, she isn't the perfect 
character by any means, but um, real agency for this character to explore her emotions and her mind and other parts of her body that motivate her. Because um, you know, essentially she's torn between three men because you know one has appealed to her mind, one's appealed to her heart, the other one's appealed to her unbridled lust, and and it's quite a quite a fun dynamic actually. Um, but look, there's a scene, I think, where Carrie Mulligan sort of speaks to her co-workers. She's just inherited the farm, and she says to them, it is my intention to astonish you all. And I got such a shiver down my spine, because I just thought, oh, yeah, I, th- I think you will. It's going to happen now, isn't it? <laughs> just what she does with her face, um, slight body language, sli- slight gestures. It communicates paragraphs and paragraphs of pose, of what she, prose, rather, what she's thinking. I loved her costumes. I'm not, not, not normally a costume person. I felt exactly the same thing. The textures of the costumes the beautiful I was fascinated reds, with. Yeah, and, and the, the, the there's blues. a denim dress and a leather, yep. brown leather writing. I mean, and I'm not a, a costuming no. freak at all, but I was really taken just with the textures of this film. And they're smart costumes because mm-hmm. they're really practical clothes, but they also distinguish her from, from the others. Yeah, I, really sophisticated film, and I was surprisingly moved by the end. I was, I, was, I was smitten. I was swept off my feet. The romantic in me really came to the fore. Um, there's also some nice bromance stuff in this too between some of the guys which I thought was actually really sweet. These two men talking about her with nothing but admiration and kind of respect and both sort of acknowledging each other's love for her. Yeah, and across a major class divide as well. Yes. So that was um, very, very nicely handled. Everyone in this film comes out smelling of roses, really. I mean, those that last the distance survive it. Of course, there's going to be a few that fall by the wayside because it's uh, a film of that era and times were tough. And sheep were um, oh, expendable. Sheep, yeah. Oh, poor, poor little lambs. There was a very interesting moment in the screening I saw yesterday, which I haven't experienced in a cinema since, well, going back to Raiders of the Lost Ark at the Aster many, many, many years ago, where there's a point, and I'm not going to say which point, but where um, a character is sufficiently wounded, which erupted in, a, in an, uh, an audience of applause within the cinema. Really? And this is like a Blue Ritz wow. Brigade audience, which was kind of startling. Well, because there is the villain character, but I think that villain character even gets a lot of sympathy put towards them as well. Like, there's a real understanding for why they're behaving the way they are. You know, they are a character in despair. Let's so, telegraph, too, that yeah. men who are somehow jilted at some point might somehow become uh, rather worse human beings. There's actually explicit telegraphed so I think that's actually really nicely done too and I think it implies a really uh, it indicates a very very complex adult reading of Thomas Hardy he's Hardy at his best has a um, a real fascination with the hypocrisy surrounding figures like the ruined woman yeah yeah, um, does, yeah. and I think that when his works at its best and even he's, he wrote a very pa- famous poem a very funny poem called the ruined woman um, Tess of course deals with the same kind mm. of idea but it really he really goes for the jugular of these kind of hypocrisies and I think that the way that um, some of these more villainous characters or supposedly more villainous characters in, in this particular adaptation, they, they could be really misunderstood and really lose that, that quite important social criticism that, that was so inherent to the original Hardy. Yeah. And he, you know, he shows us that men do get rejected and we have options on how to behave and being absolute douchebags who get all, all kind of sulky and vengeful is one option and it's not a good one. I mean, I really like that. There are some really positive male characters in this film in a way that I don't think is condescending or aren't these guys good, give them a cookie. It's like a, these are positive male role models and you sort of, I sort of noticed the absence of characters like this from a lot of cinema. <laughs> 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Tangerines. This is one you brought to our attention, Cerise. It blinked and you almost missed the fact that this film finally got released. Yeah, it was a, a surprise. Um, I hadn't actually been aware of it, but it was an Oscar and Golden Globe nominated Best Foreign Film a year or so ago. Uh, curiously, yes, named Tangerines, but on the soundtrack, Mandarins and subtitled throughout Clementines. I noticed that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's all shades of the same sort of citrus fruit. It's not that important. Uh, what this film is, is uh, it was George's entry in the Oscars and Golden Globes. <clears throat> Excuse me, the other year. It, but it concerns Estonian people, firstly, but it says, no, we're going, not going to be that simple. Uh, when the film opens, there's uh, some titles, uh, a little bit of explanatory text. Estonian settlements had been in the Caucasus going back more than 100 years, but with the outbreak of war between Georgia and Abkhazia, um, and a separatist movement to have an autonomous region of this newly independent Georgia recognised as a nation called Abkhazia. Uh, this happened in 1992, and ethnic Estonians were forced to return to their ancestral homelands, namely, I should think, Estonia, principally. Uh, villages emptied, only a few stayed, we are advised, clearly flagging that we are going to meet at least one such person. Uh, in fact, the film is largely concerned with two. Evo, played by Limbert Wolfsack, and Margus, played by Elmo uh, Nürgen. And I'm onto, uh, hiding to nothing trying to pronounce Estonian names, but there we go. Uh, Evo looks rather like Michael Haneke. Uh, he is clearly very attached to this land, having unwisely decided to stay there and help his good friend Margus with a harvest. Uh, Evo is a carpenter. He's at the start of the film making crates, uh, which immediately brings uh, him into uh, doubt in terms of his motivations when some soldierly types turn up uninvited and ask for, well, insist on hospitality. They presume he might be making crates, one would think, for uh, military objects of some sort and he isn't he is genuinely helping Margus with his tangerine harvest however they know there isn't much time either to get the harvest and perhaps uh, with the proceeds from that make a new life back in Estonia where his daughter has already gone we see her often in photos and are wondering if in fact there mightn't be more to uh, Evo then meets the eye he, we know he harbours some sort of secret throughout um, and it's, he's not just sticking around simply because of a connection to the land on account of the tangerines um, but well, he, he and Margus get embroiled in the uh, the, the war that is just breaking out and it's complicated because not only are there Abkhazian folk uh, battling Georgians but the Abkhazian team is propped up by Russia and folks from across the Caucasus in Chechnya are uh, getting involved as mercenaries and the film especially later concerns two key figures in this conflict, one being a Chechen mercenary fighting uh, for money to help the Abkhazian separatists and another man, Nika, who's Georgian, who is a, a volunteer who just felt obliged to get involved. And the two are close to death when they're brought back uh, to health in Evo's place and each naturally just wishes to kill the other and Evo makes him promise not to under his roof. 
and that's basically the almost the entire. It's the odd couple. It is, yeah, it's sort of an odd couple. <laughs> I mean, clearly, I mean, I, I could see where this film was going very early on. Yeah. And it was clearly going to be about the futility of war. There's mm. that phrase again. Uh, I had a sense that not everyone was going to last the distance. That's, but the, the the point isn't necessarily who lasts and who doesn't. Just that some will, some won't, and it's all a bit arbitrary. And war is stupid. Um, and people, even if they come to terms with the stupidity of it, mightn't. Uh, even last the the full runtime of a film because it is that stupid. There are curiously a, a couple of little meta moments in there, a few droll comments about cinema, a bit of disappointment when a truck pushed down a hill doesn't explode, <laughs> and Anika when uh, talking about what he does outside of the war that previously he'd been an actor in the theatre and would have loved to have worked in cinema, but there's no money for it in that part <laughs> of the world, yeah. which uh, I don't think is just about the 1990s setting for this film, but very much about the present day. And uh, just before I throw this over, there's another very good new Georgian film, which I'm wondering if it mightn't turn up at MIF, called Corn Island from director George Ovashvili. And it too is about this very same conflict and again places a staple item of food at the centre of a conflict around which all of these varying uh, tribal forces are all in conflict with one another in complex triangular ways. Um, just do their worst to wreck the life of an innocent old man farming a crop. Also, people coming together around food and that shared experience of the meal, that's such a staple of world cinema, isn't yeah. it? Remember there's just a whole spate of... Babbitt's Feast. Babbitt's yeah. Feast and Chocolat and just everyone wet their pants over these films. Can we include Cook the Thief on that or is that stretching it a bit? <laughs> no, I, I, I approve of that oh, one. No, on. yeah. That's really, really stretching it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's another extreme. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the Look, this film does, you know, one thing, it's about a conflict I know very little about, so it was interesting from that point of view, but it does set up a morality play where you know what's going to play out. You know it's going to be a film exposing the fact that conflict over these political divisions is silly. Once you get to know your fellow human being, all that kind of stuff dispenses. It's all about the brotherhood of men, and they are all men except for the photo of the daughter. They all kind of perv on to different degrees of acceptability. Um, The thing that kept kept running through my head is why did this film go gangbusters in America? Why did Americans love this film so late in the day? It's a 2013 film and nominated for the Academy Awards and for the Golden Globes, and I figured out it's a fairly... It's it's a good film, but it's a safe film with an anti-war message about a conflict that has nothing to do with the Americans. So they could really embrace this film because it has nothing to do with them. And they can say, yeah, this is a good example of why war is bad and it's got nothing to do with us. Hurrah. I find that films with an overtly pacifist core can sometimes risk being a little bit pushy or overwrought. It, I always get my kind of shackles up a little bit when I know that that's what a film's trying to tackle. We looked a few months back at uh, Jean Renoir's The Grand Illusion from 1937, which I was thinking about while I was watching this. And while they're tonally very different films, I think that both Tangerines and Grand Illusion... Um, focus on the micro details of the personal experience of the of the people involved and i think that that's where they kind of get their clout for me is this is really these tiny little interactions this mm. this real micro detail i found that this film was really simple but really engaging it felt a lot to me um it's it's not but it felt a lot like an adapted stage play yeah i was going to say the um, same thing and, yeah, it's to and i was too, thinking yeah. a lot while i was watching it. I, lo- I looked it up and it's it's not and i was surprised that it wasn't but it's staging is so very consciously uh, intimate and localised. And I I think the director was quite wise in a way in composing the film in this way, um, 
really making quite literal this idea of closeness, of the physical closeness of different people and kind of building a, a message out of that. I, I really like this film. I found it quite very simple but very moving. Yeah, me too. And it plays on space in a really interesting way. I mean, it, the inside the Evo's house is that theatrical setting which you could completely envisage on stage, but also the rustic countryside is so stunning and beautiful and there's a kind of a tension between, you know, no one gets killed inside the house but as soon as you're outside, it's open, open season on you. The other thing I, I I noted about this, and I think it's not just my lack of understanding about this region and these conflicts, is I think misunderstanding is built into the narrative because we have Chechens, Georgians, Russians, Abkhazians, Estonians. You have religious conflicts between the Orthodox Christians and and Islam. And, you know, without knowing the nuances of the history, and I think it becomes an increasingly key plot point that these characters don't, and it uses those misunderstandings in order to kind of ram home the point about the pointlessness of war and the futility of war and, and aren't we all just humans at, at a core level that's a good point i mean the characters are almost as confused as we are about who's meant to be on what side and yep. a, a really vital plot point near the end of the film hinges on that very fact yep. though there is a, a certain joy i find as a spectator just trying to train your ear to detect the different accents of sometimes they're speaking russian and it's, there's a little bit more sing-songiness about the estonian to my ear but yeah it's it, there is a, yeah, a key moment as, as you say alex but on the whole that doesn't matter because really the message still comes through very loud and clear but having mentioned corn island earlier it's a superior film it's a really poetic beautiful film so if that does materialize around here come myth time i would really urge people don't to see me. that i don't know i'm so <laughs> tunnel vision on my own part of the program i have no idea what the others are doing no but, spoilers but, here but, but, yeah. but, but tangerines it's uh, uh small and simple but very effective i think we all like that one you've been listening to playlist cave with thomas alexandra josh and cerise we looked at zero motivation that screening at the new lido cinemas in hawthorne through jiff distribution far from the manning crowd is on general release through 20th Century Fox and Tangerines is screening at Cinema Nova and The Classic through Rialto Distribution. Next week, we're going to take a look at the new documentary about Amy Winehouse and we're going to revisit the 1960s English film classic If. Good night. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.